This is Inside the Times. I'm Susan Lehman. Modern love. Who doesn't want to know more about modern love? Times Insider hosted a recent event with Daniel Jones, who has edited the paper's popular modern love column since 2004. In this kind of a column, there's a dramatic structure where the prize awaits at the end. Jessica Albert, who manages the team at WBUR that produces Modern Love, the podcast, joined up. We started by really thinking about casting and who we wanted. And honestly, we didn't know if we would get big names. We didn't. As did Times reporter Dan Barry. It was in writing those first few sentences and thinking about it and trying to be funny, I realized, well, actually, there's something deeper here. Dan's 2009 Modern Love column about his daughter's dead fish was one of the first to be recorded. Conversation about that column kicked off the event. Enjoy. Thank you all for coming. Uh, Dan Barry is a longtime columnist and reporter for the New York Times and the author of four books, including most recently, The Boys in the Bunkhouse, Servitude and Salvation in the Heartland. The book tells the story of dozens of men with intellectual disability who spend decades working at an Iowa turkey processing plant, living in an old school house and enduring exploitation and abuse before finding justice and achieving freedom. I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with his um, expose in the Times that led, led to this book that was just so, so powerful. Uh, his modern love essay, just one last swirl around the bowl um, appeared in the column in 2009 and was featured as the second episode of the Modern Love podcast read by Jason Alexander. And this is an episode that we all slaved over and know so well because we wanted to start off um, with something that really had an impact. Um, so I can hear this episode in my sleep. <laughs> it's really um, just so, so moving. Um, Jessica, Jessica Alpert is the managing producer for program development at WBUR, where she develops new podcasts and programs. She also oversees WBUR's iLab, an experimental unit that works to break new ground in the area of audio storytelling. Since September of last year, she has been the producer of the Modern Love podcast. And I wanted to call out one other person, if she's in the audience, um, Sarah Moses. Sarah Moses is a... Um, is a modern love columnist from a few weeks ago. And her story was called Single Woman Seeking Manwich. <laughs> and it began with the line, I almost gave up on dating when a sandwich rejected me. She gave a headline to this piece that was Single Female Seeking Manwich. At the Times, the writers don't write their own headlines. They're, they're written by the, the copy desk, and increasingly by um, editors and writers are suggesting them or writing them themselves. And there's sort of this transition where we're taking on some of that. Because there's, with, with a, web, a web story that sometimes has different search needs than, than a print story, um, that we often need two headlines for a story. So there's just a lot, of, a lot of work that needs to be done in that end. So other people are getting involved in the process. Still, I think in the entire history of the Modern Love column, maybe four headlines were written by the writers themselves. And they were so good that I was like, well, and the copy desk, whenever I'd pass on my own, they'd usually reject them. And so I, I, would, I would only pass along something that was I thought was really good. So um, Sarah's I thought was really good. 
and I passed it along. And then we get to the copy desk phase, and the copy editor who I know well and work with all the time. And he changed single female seeking manwich to single woman seeking manwich. And I was like, oh, come on. <laughs> Why? He said, well, um, uh, woman is really the, we really use as the noun, and female is really the adjective. Uh, we don't really use female as a noun. Um, and I said, but this is really the form of an online ad or a print, you know, personal ad. Like, it, the movie wasn't single white woman. It was single white female. It was, it was, and so we went back and forth, and I was like, female woman, female woman. Fe and finally, he won that battle, as they always do. Um, and it came out as single woman seeking man, which, and it made no difference whatsoever. But this is how we'd spend our afternoon going back and forth. <laughs> and it wasn't, just, it wasn't just the back and forth, it was him Googling. I said, well, that's not the form for a personal ad. So he went on, on Google and looked up personal ads and Googled um, single woman seeking. And he said, there are hundreds of hits with single woman seeking. <laughs> and so then I guess it was my job to go and look up single female, which I didn't do. Anyway, that's, that's behind the scenes at the New York Times for you. <laughs> um, but the column started in 2004. It was really caused by my wife, I have to say. She was struggling in marriage to me. <laughs> and so were all of her friends. We had little kids, and she was um, sort of feeling the stress of that. She's a writer and an editor, and she decided to do an anthology and uh, her friend suggested that she call that anthology The Bitch in the House. <laughs> and so she did. And uh, it was you know, really well-written essays that were grappling with, um, with how, you, how we navigate contemporary relationships with working and taking care of kids and um, being in a marriage and, and how that's hard. Um, and so she published this book. Um, it was a surprise bestseller. And it backed me into the corner of having to have men respond, which I then did. Uh, my book was called The Bastard on the Couch. <laughs> and uh, those two books together, specifically because they were done by husband and wife, um, got a lot of attention. And the then uh, Styles editor of the Times, a guy named Trip Gabriel, he's now a political reporter who follows Republican candidates around. I call him the kiss of death because whoever he followed <laughs> dropped out shortly thereafter <laughs> until he wound up with Trump. And that's been a harder, um, that's been a harder get. Uh, but he's, he's still on the case. Um, he, he wanted to, um, to have something run, wanted to have a personal essay column that had these kinds of really revealing uh, essays about relationships and have it run on a, on a weekly basis. And he'd been toying with this idea for a while, and when he read our books, he thought, these are the people to, to do it, and contacted us and said, um, brought us down, and my wife was working on another book at the time and wasn't as into the idea, but we didn't feel like we could say no, so we took it on as a couple in the summer of 2004, and we spent six months coming up with a column that could get launched. It launched on Halloween day um, in 2004, scarily enough. By that point, my wife had dropped out, and it was it was my job alone. I asked Trip Gabriel at the time, because I was concerned about being employed, how long this sort of thing usually lasts, 
And he shrugged his shoulders and said, I don't know, a year, three years? And it's been a 12-year job for me that has just uh, expanded um, from, from year to year. And it's something I've really loved and really love doing here and with all the people that I work with here. And now that it's become a podcast, it's even taken on this new life. So it's been 12 years, 600 essays in that amount of time. Now the Times has lots of um, personal essay columns. The Sunday Review is full of them. Um, but this was a new, a relatively, it was kind of an odd duck when it first started in the Styles column, Styles section. And one reason it's unusual is, is its narrative structure. So you come to the newspaper and you're a newspaper reader and you start reading a story and whatever's most important about that story is usually near the beginning. With a lot of news stories, you read through the first few paragraphs and you get what's most important and maybe you stop after that. Um, but hopefully not. In, in this kind of a column, there's a dramatic structure where the prize awaits at the end. Information is withheld along the way and you're given a little bit more and it goes a little bit deeper and you're given a little bit more. Whatever revelation in that real news story is to be had is usually to be had within the first third. Whatever revelation is to be had in this kind of personal essay is to be had often in the last paragraph or two. My early encounters with, with the copy desk were often about, um, would often involve debates about them coming up with language to sell the piece that gave away the end. Because they were so used to having the important thing be, be put into a pull quote or, or whatever. And I'd say, no, 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 that let the reader discover. The reader wants to discover what's going to happen at that end. Dan Barry's story, just one last swirl around the bowl, which I hope those of you who haven't read it uh, will go home this evening and read it. Those of you who haven't listened to the podcast of it, you'll get a sample of it in a little bit. Um, but Jason Alexander reading it is just such a treat. And, and I should say that Dan and the kind of writing that he often does for the Times ha has those prizes toward the end of the stories. He, he um, has this narrative structure where the, the further you get into it, the richer it gets and the more layered it gets and the more surprises there are. And by the end, you're often in tears. <laughs> the story, his story, just that one last swirl around the bowl that had to do with his daughter's fishes dying. And he goes on for a while talking about his daughter's goldfish dying. And this was a submission that came to me from Dan. It really made me think immediately, uh-oh, like it's awkward enough having a colleague <laughs> submit an essay. To have a colleague submit a sentimental essay about his daughter's fish dying was really put me in a spot. So I started to read into it, and it was sort of with incredible relief and sense of respect. And as, it, as I said, oh, this is what this is about. It was about mortality, really. Um, and we don't find out until three quarters of the way into it that Dan had been battling cancer. We don't find out until a third of the way into it about his, his, his being at his mother's bedside. We don't find out until two-thirds of the way in about his father and how this all layers around this, this pet goldfish and how it's come to mean um, so much to him. So I wanted to have Dan talk about the process of writing that. And I don't know if it comes just naturally to you or if there's an intentionality to it. But if you could just talk about that 
process of writing in, in, in that story in particular and just in general, how you, how you go about it? So when my daughter's fish was dying, I naturally saw it as a modern love essay. <laughs> Did you? No. <laughs> no, with all respect. That was your last choice? That was your last choice? Uh, no, no, not at all. Um, I, I, I've been writing a, a, the This Land column, and uh, I hope that I don't always bring people to tears. I hope sometimes they laugh as well. <laughs> but, laughing um, through the tears. Right? right, laughing through the tears. But, you know, uh, I covered a lot of disasters and, you know, tornadoes and all that kind of stuff. And my daughter's fish was dying, and I just felt a need to write that down. And as I was writing it down, I was really doing it kind of as a, a relief from covering disasters around the country. And, uh, you know, I, I was kind of writing it in a funny way at first, you know, the idea of giving CPR to a fish and all this kind of stuff. And then, um, and we've all done that, and, uh, <laughs> or, or tried. Um, so really, it was, for me, something I'm, I'm drawn to do. I'm going through some kind of emotion and... Uh, Were you writing it as the daughter's fish was, your daughter's fish was dying? Yeah, yeah. I don't think it had died. It has since died, <laughs> um, uh, despite the CPR. Anyway, so, the, uh, so, so it really is like the way I process life. So something is happening. Uh, I needed to stretch a different muscle. And initially, I was trying to just be a little funny about it. But then I realized uh, why I was genuinely so upset about the fish dying. Part of the essay is my yelling at the fish, eat, eat, and the fish is dying. Uh, has anyone fed the fish? Uh, I'll feed the fish. And basically getting upset with this $3 fish uh, because it's not eating. And it was in writing those first few sentences and thinking about it and trying to be funny, I realized, well, actually, there's something deeper here. And so the way the, the essay is structured, as you laid out, was part of the process. Initially, it was going to be kind of a riff. And then it, it was your got, own discovery of what it was about. Right. And then it became, uh, to me at least, deeper. And why was I upset with the fish dying? I was angry with the fish for dying or for not eating. As I thought about it more and more, it was really anger about dying of a mother, the anger over the dying of a father, and anger at my own wrestling with mortality at one point. I mean, we can talk about courage and we can talk about grief and everything, but a, a huge component of this process is anger. And uh, I had this fish to take it out on. So, so that's how that began. Um, so at the end of this, of this essay, um, which, yes, made me cry, <laughs> especially in the, um, the, the podcast version, you know, we talk about writing with detail and specificity and how that can carry so much more emotional weight than summary. And at the end of this piece, um, Dan is in his daughter's bedroom where the fish is on a, on a dresser. Um, and he, he describes the, the, the things that are around the, the bowl um, that the fish is dying in. And, um, there's some stray playing cards and whatever, and then there's this this music box that plays the theme from Love Story, <laughs> and it has these ceramic figurines, and it's it's such a good example of you know there, there's such a thing as a you know forced symbolism that just sucks all of the emotion out of 
you know, just it's too heavy handed and it, 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 instead of enhancing the emotion, it drains the emotion and distracts you. In this piece, this idea, he turns on the music box and he's just so upset about all these things he's dealing with and, um, and watches these, these inanimate things being brought to life by this, this music box. And I really don't like that song, but uh, <laughs> you know. also I, I didn't write it initially, or I didn't approach it as a modern love essay, but as I got deeper into it, you know, I thought of it as a song to love in many ways, right, the, the essay. And then I sent it to you, not as a joke, but saying, let's see if this guy will get it. You know, you know what I mean? It was almost like a journalistic dare uh -huh. whether you'll get it. And in terms of the ending, you know, uh, reporters will look for those details. You know, my, no my notebook will have uh, an entire description of this room uh, down to exactly what's on the wall, and I'll only use about 3 or 4% of what I've written mm -hmm. down. So it's a selection of the details. And that, just hap that music box just happened to be there. I, I quite frankly, am not sure whether I even understood what the ending would mean with that music yeah, box. Yeah, those are the you best symbols I mean? is when you don't quite understand. Right. That, right? I, I'm not, you know, it's not, it wasn't meant to be heavy-handed. It was actually right. to be the opposite of that. But this is what it was, you know what I mean? Right. And uh, I went into my daughter's bedroom with a notebook and recorded the dirty socks on the dresser and recorded uh -huh. the, the playing cards and this music box. And then I said, oh, let me turn it on. It took me years of editing this column before I understood that um, what I was selecting and what people were offering up, this column is 1,500 words long, which is almost exactly five double-spaced pages, which is not very much. And I was years into this column before I, I understood that most of the people writing for it, not all, and we have a little bit of mix, but most of the people writing for it are telling the most important story of their life in those five pages. That's often why it packs that's so much of a punch um, when it does. It has that uh, sort of import. You know, this is, this is a narrative of the most important story of my life. Three years ago, the general manager of WBUR, a guy named Charlie Kravitz, very garrulous, charismatic guy, called me out of the blue. I don't even know how he got my number, actually. Whitepages.com. <laughs> <laughs> called me out of the blue. He was in his car. He said, hi, Dan, this is Charlie Kravitz. I'm the general manager of WBUR, the public radio station in Boston. You're wondering why I'm calling you. <laughs> and I was because I'd never heard of him, and I had no idea why he was calling me. And then he said, oh, hang on, and he was making a turn or something, and I was put on hold for a little while while he turned and didn't want to talk on the phone while he was driving. And he gets back on the phone. He said, I, we want to use, turn modern love into some sort of a radio segment. You know, there's so often things happen with modern love that don't materialize. There's interest to do this and that and the other thing. There's got to be more we can do with these stories. And maybe it gets partway along, like a TV show did at one point, or maybe it um, evaporates at the beginning. But I've become very jaded that none of this stuff ever delivers. So I said, yeah, yeah, sounds great, sounds great. Now he said, well, let's have you in for a meeting. So I went to Boston, and, and we... We sat around a table with a bunch of people and talked about ideas of turning into a radio show. No one really knew what to do with it, to tell you the truth. It was talked about as being like a 10-minute segment that could work into some other show, existing show. And it was a full three years later, I got a call from a woman who does licensing here who said, well, this is finally happening with WBUR, and they want to turn the Modern Love column into a podcast. And I don't think we really knew at the beginning what 
the shape of that podcast was going to be. And, and, and even this idea of having actors read the columns who were known actors, um, that was Charlie's idea. And I thought that was kind of pie in the sky. I was like, well, why would they want to do that? <laughs> I have such a sort of pessimistic outlook on these things actually happening. But it was, I guess, last summer that these discussions really started in earnest and moved along at a really fast clip. Actors signed on to read, and we figured we wanted to hear the writers talk about them afterward and all of that. And I'm going to have Jessica take over from here and talk about how we shape this into a podcast. And um, she has a bunch of audio clips that sort of illustrate different ways that this is um, turned into an audio feature that are so much more, there's so much more thought and detail that goes into this than uh, at least I, I would ever expect. The thing about when, you, when you're working with a column that has such, such a loyal following and, and just an incredible history, it's such a huge responsibility. So we felt um, we had to do this right. And um, we started by really thinking about casting and who we wanted. And honestly, we didn't know if we would get big names. We didn't. But um, ignorance is bliss. And so when you go out and ask, you know, you, sometimes you really do receive. And so um, I wanted to start off by playing just a, this is a shortened version of an essay called Open Adoption, Not So Simple Math. It was written by Amy Seek. Um, and it was read by the actor Sarah Paulson. And um, we cut it down to like four minutes, 4.30. So you can take a listen and, and just have a little bit of a foundation before we go any deeper. I wanted my son to become the kind of person who appreciates the beauty of the world around him. So I smiled when at six, he asked to borrow my camera in case he saw something beautiful. We were taking a walk in the woods outside Boston and following behind him, I was surprised by how much he moved like his father. We spent that afternoon showing each other icicles and hollow trees, breaking frozen patterns in the river ice, inching too close to the water to get a better view of the bridge above. When we arrived home, Ben said that the reason he wanted to go for a walk was to spend time with me. It had been three months since I last saw him. I smiled sheepishly and stepped into the living room, where the woman who had adopted him six years earlier sat reading the newspaper. I spent the evening chatting with her while avoiding direct interaction with Ben for fear I'd show too much affection or too little. Open adoption is an awkward choreography. I am offered a place at the table, but I am not sure where to sit. I don't know how to be any kind of mother, much less one who surrendered her child, but is back to help build a Lego castle. It is a far cry from the moment he was born, when my 23-year-old body seemed to know exactly what to do, when I suddenly and surprisingly wanted nothing more than to admire him nursing at my breast. When after a drugless labor, my surging hormones helped me to forget that I was a college student, that I lived in Cincinnati, that I was passionate about architecture. During those days, I was roused by the slightest sound of his lips smacking, innocent newborn desire that offered my deepest fulfillment. In the months before I gave birth, when my boyfriend and I were just getting to know the couple we had chosen, 
I was able to comprehend the coming exchange only on the most theoretical of levels. But it seemed like gentle math. Girl with child she can't keep, plus woman who wants but can't have child. Balance the equation, and both parties become whole again. During those months, my son's mother, Holly, observed that birth mothers have to accomplish in one day the monumental task of letting go that most parents have 18 years to figure out. I signed the papers on a hot August day in 2000. My pen rested at the intersection of two vastly different futures and I struggled to see into the distance of each. It was such a small gesture, but it was the first sketch of my life without a son. One of the exercises I was given in adoption counseling was to envision the hours immediately after the adoption. What would I do after signing the papers? Pick up the towels that had been tossed in the corner when my water broke? Pack up the extra blankets I'd been given by the hospital workers who touched my shoulder and prayed aloud that I would find the courage to keep my son? I could no longer imagine how a mother could give up a child and live. Adoption was not simple math. A new mother cannot know the value of the things she subtracts. It is only through time, when my son turned four and I was 27, when he turned six and I was 29, when he turns 10 this year and I am 33 and ready for children, that I begin to understand the magnitude of what I lost and that it is growing. I know that Holly represents me to my son in my absence and always encourages him to love me. I love Holly for sharing such things with me, sentiments that show she's devoted to our relationship and not because it is easy for her. And I have told her that a pivotal point in my grief was the moment I was able to say aloud that I wanted my son back, though I knew it was impossible. When I realized that his adoption had been both my greatest accomplishment and deepest regret. When I returned home to New York after my visit, I looked at the pictures Ben had taken with my camera. Fragments of arms and legs, blurry close-ups of leaves caught in ice, Evidence to me that although he has his father's distinctive gait, he shares my need to grasp and hold on to beautiful things, to document and to somehow preserve them forever. Things he can't possibly keep. So that's just a small excerpt of Sarah Paulson reading Amy Seek's essay. So I think that gives you an idea of the power of, obviously the power of the written word, but when we're given that task, that responsibility to turn it into something that you can hear, it's, um, it's been a great journey for us as audio journalists. So do you want to say anything about that? So that, that's about an 11-minute original. In the original version, it's about an 11-minute segment. Um, I was first tasked with, among these 600 essays, what might work well <laughs> as an audio version and it's not, it wasn't immediately clear to me what, what um, the criteria should be for that kind of selection. But an obvious one was a story that's, that's dramatic, um, where a lot of things happen, where there's dialogue, where you're waiting to find out what's going to happen, rather than an essay that's more about ideas, or one that has a really muddied chronology. And um, in this case, 
I, this was one of my favorite essays um, from the column. It's, it's, it's really powerful in written form, but it, it, it's not chronological at all. It's all over the place. Um, a lot of it is just her interior monologue talking about this um, experience and um, what's a very sort of powerful and, and sad experience. And it was not an obvious choice at all. And um, I wasn't really familiar with, with Sarah Paulson. Um, so I really didn't have high expectations, or really any expectations, I guess. But I didn't, it wasn't an obvious choice for me, nor was yours, to tell you the truth. And, uh, these didn't seem, you know, with what I was thinking would, would make for, for powerful audio. Uh, so for, for me, it was just a huge treat to see, oh my god, like, <laughs> when you, with, how even a story that you're not waiting to find out what's going to happen. There's not a car crash, you know. There's not a lot of dialogue um, that, it can, that it can accumulate that kind of power anyway. Yeah, I think that comes from years and years of reading and, and being able to, to hear things. I think casting is a big piece of that. So when someone comes to us or when we're able to book Connie Britton, for example, then the real work begins. And we try to think, well, what does Connie Britton bring to the table? And so then begins this huge research process where I just become the expert on Connie Britton and I learn every facet <laughs> of her life. And, um, and what I do is I send three essays to her people. And I always tuck in the one I really want her to read, you know, usually in the middle. And uh, sometimes they pick them, sometimes they don't. But no matter what, all three I think will work for their voice and their experience. And so I sent Connie Britton an essay um, called My First Lesson in Motherhood. It's written by Elizabeth Fitzsimons. It's about a woman who goes to China um, to adopt her daughter, and it's checkered with many challenges along the way. And I knew Connie Britton had an adopted son from Ethiopia. And this is Elizabeth Fitzsimons with her daughter, Natalie, and husband, Matt. So you can see it ends well, luckily. Yeah, it does end well. <laughs> but um, the point is, I mean, she picked it immediately. And it felt like, a, you know, it feels like you're half special undercover investigator and then half casting. And, but the point is it's, um, it's become one of the most important pieces of this puzzle is to find the voice. I think Sarah Paulson delivers that beautifully. Um, that was another one that I was like, you know, we did it. But let's go to the next slide and we'll talk about, um, you know, sort of the mechanics of how we make this work. In the Sarah Paulson, you heard a little bit of, you know, you heard a baby crying, you heard, I mean, every minute is analyzed. We, you know, we have so little time to catch you as a listener that we have to just um, really be very, very um, deliberate. So I want to walk you through. These are each like 20 seconds. It's the same cut um, in three different versions. So this is Emmy Rossum. She read um, an essay called The Mel Millennial's Guide to Kissing, written by Emma Court. And so what we're going to do first is we're just going to listen to the raw. And the raw means this is just her voice. Nothing. We bought tickets at the train terminal, lingering on the automated buttons. After, as we were about to board trains heading in different directions, we stared at each other. He rested one arm on his rolling suitcase, bewilderment in his eyes. I hugged him, a brisk, no-nonsense goodbye. We didn't exchange numbers. Bye, he shouted down the stairs at my back. See you never. 
that's what we come with. I mean, that's given to us, and then you know we have to do the sound design. So let's start, now let's do the second one. And this is what happens when you add sound effects. We bought tickets at the train terminal, lingering on the automated buttons. After, as we were about to board trains heading in different directions, we stared at each other. He rested one arm on his rolling suitcase, bewilderment in his dark eyes. I hugged him, a brisk, no-nonsense goodbye. We didn't exchange numbers. Bye, he shouted down the stairs at my back. See you never. So that's from the Newark train station, and that is sound from the Newark train station. Um, so this, this is the last piece, so you're going to hear all the layering, so the sound effects and then the score, and you'll see how, how we use music to basically manipulate you. So. <laughs> We bought tickets at the train terminal, lingering on the automated buttons. After, as we were about to board trains heading in different directions, we stared at each other. He rested one arm on his rolling suitcase, bewilderment in his dark eyes. I hugged him, a brisk, no-nonsense goodbye. We didn't exchange numbers. Bye, he shouted down the stairs at my back. See you never. So you see how we use music to, to do that turn, um, to take you, you know, to take you to a place where maybe you have an idea of what's coming, but um, to reflect on what's been said and where we're going. So music is extremely uh, valuable to us. So when you have um, sound effects like in a train station, music, a piano, are is this like from some stock sound effects house that you go to to get these? Are they originally recorded? Like what? So it depends. From? Um, we have you know we have access to a seven hundred thousand title music library. That's where the music comes from. Also, musicians send us their music all the time, which is wonderful. So we we get to use original music that way. But the sound comes from very different things. I mean. Um, the babies that you heard, I put out a call to everyone at the station and all station email, please send me your children recorded. <laughs> I need ages, you know, I need nine months to nine years. And so now we have this huge library of children that we can tap when we need. Um, you know, footsteps, you can find things on YouTube that have, you know, a license that you can use, but um, sometimes it's just better if we do it ourselves. So we just go outside and just record our feet. Sound is extremely, because we scrutinize every minute, it's extremely important what we choose. And I feel like in the fish, you'll hear a little bit of what I'm talking about. And I think it all comes together in this piece because the casting was, I mean, I felt like Jason Alexander was so perfect for this essay because he really takes us through Dan's emotions. And, and I, I tried to pick an excerpt where you can see both sides of the coin. So. Um, let's take a listen, and then maybe we can ask Dan Barry what it's like to hear George Costanza read his <laughs> essay. Now, about this stupid fish. It is known formally as John Cronin the Fish, and it goes way back in my young family. When my older daughter, Nora, got a tropical fish several years ago, my younger daughter, Grace, became mesmerized by the swimming, the swirling, the very being of such a wondrous thing. 
After studying it with focused intensity, Grace finally announced that she could not go on living the beginning of her days without a fish of her own. My wife, Mary, and I tried to impress upon her the many responsibilities of fish ownership, feeding the fish, cleaning the fish's bowl, feeding the fish, cleaning the fish's bowl, feeding the fish, cleaning the fish's bowl. But Grace was two at the time and Poseidon. <laughs> if we had said she would have to carry the fish to the ocean every week so that it could confer with Poseidon, she would have said, yes, 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 please, I want a fish, please, yes. Which is what we finally said after being shamed by Nora's sweet offer to use half her life savings, about $6, to buy a fish for her little sister. The family went to the pet store, spent more on the glass bowl than on its tenant, and covered the base of its new home with small phosphorescent rocks that looked like children's breakfast cereal. We then tucked that little mermaid upright into this fruity pebbles beach, but she kept listening to the side as though woozy from one too many Mai Tais at some figurine mixer. <laughs> A morning ritual began. My wife made the coffee, let the dog out, gently roused the girls, and did pretty much everything else that makes morning so glorious an entrance into another day. My role simply was to choose some ill-timed moment, say, uh, the last-minute school bus scramble, to call out, Did anyone feed John Cronin the fish? <laughs> Over the years, the fish demonstrated a will to live so strong that I could not shake the old Monty Python, I'm not dead yet, routine from my twisted mind. Just one example. In carefully preparing for a two-week vacation last summer, we corralled a relative to feed John Cronin the fish the first week and a neighbor to feed him the second week. But in the end, it was as though these conversations had been conducted at the town pool underwater because John Cronin the fish wasn't fed for nearly two weeks. When we returned, we tried to ease our guilt by sending a plentiful rain of pellets cascading down around him. He accepted the food and did a twirl or two as if to say, that's life. That is life. Though for the last few weeks, John Cronin the fish has not been enjoying it. Every morning now, I tap on the bowl in small applause, hoping this might initiate that affirming underwater ballet. But he remains still, his bowl's glass magnifying the whisper of his gills. All I can do is reach again for the small cardboard cylinder of fish food. As these brown bits of sustenance pause on water's surface, then begin their dreamlike descent to those fruity pebble rocks, I think of the sugary tea and cinnamon toast that my mother, ten years gone, would serve me when I stayed home from school, partly sick, partly seeking reassurance that she would always, always be there when I needed her. Kids think like that. Many years later, I tried to repay the favor when my mother became wholly sick, not partly sick. Have a sip of tea, I would say. Have a bite of toast, have some insure. Chocolate, strawberry, vanilla. But she would not. She would smile, shake her head, and look away with a gaze that was past panic. She was 61. How does it feel to hear him? I was tearing up over that fish there. <laughs> um, first of all, uh, we know Jason Alexander as George Costanza, of course, 
but he's a quite accomplished actor. Absolutely. Uh, really has some serious acting chops. And you'll hear that there are turns that he does with his voice. So you have the gift that is Jason Alexander, then the shifting from whimsy to something more somber is done through the music. It's really, really remarkable to hear that. In a later portion of the podcast, um, there's a scene that includes my father, who passed away in a veteran's home, and it describes me sitting there while he is breathing heavily. And the sound effect, of course, is of someone breathing heavily. And I have to admit, the first time I heard that, it was very uh, intimate for me. Um, but I, I listened to it again this afternoon, and it's very effective, you know. Um, so, you know, for me, uh, all of this is just an honor, really. Well, I mean, when you're working with this kind of writing, it's just a gift. And I think you talk about the breathing. And I remember in, like, our second editing session, we were listening to the breathing, and someone said, um, it makes me very uncomfortable. I said, good. <laughs> I mean, we want you to feel things. We, we don't want you, you know, to just... We want you to focus. We want you to stop and think and take this in. And so we will put in things that may make you slightly uncomfortable. Um, but there's a point. And, and I think this essay is a great example of that. The, the podcast also has a second half. And the second half is, is having the writer um, and uh, me and sometimes someone else who was uh, in the story um, to talk about it and to be asked questions about it. And in Dan's segment, um, his daughter Grace, uh, the fish owner, the original <laughs> fish owner, was on the segment with Dan in the studio. Uh, she was the sweetest. She totally stole the show, she did. to say. But she was, so she was two in the story, but how old was she in the studio? Twelve. Twelve, okay. That was ten years ago when the fish... Well, she was five when the fish was dying. She got the oh, fish. Right. Okay. <laughs> oh, the fish <laughs> lasted three years. That's a Right. It, it, yeah, it did. It lasted three and a half years. <laughs> Well, well, well past its life expectancy, I should say. So, you took good care of it. Yes, we did. Um, <laughs> except for those two weeks. Except for those, except for those two, two weeks. weeks. <laughs> but the sweetest thing happened in this in this post interview, which was so Dan, you know, was being asked by Megna, the the host, about um, these experiences and the deaths of his parents and um, the the sort of pain associated with that. And here's Grace sitting there, 12 years old, taking all this in. And Megna turns to Grace and says, um, well, Grace, this is pretty heavy stuff. How do, you, um, how do you feel about this? And I was a little worried when she went there. <laughs> like, I wasn't quite sure where that was going to go. And Grace said, I don't, I don't remember her exact words, but it was, it was to the effect of, well, this, um, this makes me feel a lot closer to my dad. Because you know, fathers don't really talk about stuff like this. And, this, um, hearing him talk about stuff like this and hearing his story makes me feel closer to him. And it was such a moment of like, that's the gift of, of storytelling in that way, you know? Um, to have that kind of emotional connection and, and access, in this case, between a 12-year-old girl and her father taking place in a, in a radio studio. It was really, really sweet. It was such a, such a nice moment. So when Megna asked that question, mm -hmm. I'm sitting across from Grace. We both have the headsets <laughs> on. And Megna asks basically a question about mortality and how does it feel to have your father talking about death. And my eyes widened. And I looked through the glass at my wife. 
And I looked at her, and we both had this moment where I said, this can go many ways. <laughs> this, can get, this can get ugly really quick. And then also in the interview, uh, it's interesting what children will remember and what parents will forget, right? Uh, so we, we, uh, the, the, the fish died, and we honored it with the proper burial um, uh, through the passage that is made of porcelain. <laughs> and uh, and, <laughs> and uh, I remembered it, and uh, but I remembered doing that. But Grace remembers that I gathered the family around. I don't remember doing this and saying a few words over right, the right. toilet. <laughs> and, she uh, had you say a prayer. Yes, yeah, yeah, we said a prayer. I don't remember that at all, but Grace did. So. <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much, everybody. Thank you. Thank you for listening. This is Inside the Times. I'm Susan Lehman. You can subscribe to our podcast at iTunes, and you can find out more about Times Insider and our events and features at nytimes.com slash insider. Thank you. Thank you.